Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 123, Onset of Depression. Rejoice, the hiatus is over, and I'm back with more history from the worst of times. And if you thought the 1920s were bad, this decade is going to be so, so much worse. As important as the 20s were to the sequence of events leading up to World War II, they were a comparatively innocent time when stacked next to the decade that was to follow. Every error and missed opportunity of the earlier decade was only compounded by the intense pressures of the dark years we are entering now. And yes, I know I'm laying the foreboding on a little thick here, but it's not without reason. The 20s were about trying to put all the threats to the liberal order, namely communism and resurgent militarism, into a nice, contained corner. Fears of communism were a big enough factor as to why right-wing paramilitaries were allowed to tromp around Germany without much international outcry, and why guys like Mussolini and lesser men of his ilk in Central Europe were tolerated. And France's fear of a rearmed Germany out to take revenge is why they made such a stink about reintegrating them among the great powers. The United States' fear of Japanese expansion led to first tension between the two, and then years of diplomatic wrangling trying to allay each other's concerns. And by 1929, this had all been superficially resolved. The Soviets were contained, there was a balance of power in East Asia, and Germany's responsibilities to the Entente were recognized and planned out in a realistic manner. Even Mussolini seemed content to play ball. It seemed as though the big struggles had been settled, and an imperfect peace could proceed, with the compromises made to achieve it, ready to be improved upon over time, gradually. Given that the Kellogg-Briand Pact outlawing aggressive war was making the rounds right at the end of the decade, it's clear that there was every expectation that the status quo by then would march onward. This was, of course, not to be. An international order can only be judged by the disasters it faces, and the one born from the 20s was struck by one of the worst that the modern world had ever seen. And today we are kicking off Season 2 with the Great Depression. Its traditional starting point in the historiographies being the Great Wall Street Crash of October 1929 makes it just too perfect a timing to divide the 20s and 30s. But the crash itself is just one event in a long sequence that created the Depression, which itself was so terrible that the United States was forced to turn inward as the rest of the world went to hell. And in Germany, it was so catastrophic that the already discredited Weimar Republic was wide open for disillusion. And just as a heads up, for this season of the show, I'm going to be trying a little different format. Whereas last season I focused on sticking with a nation or a region and carrying through on its history through the 20s, for this season I'm going to be more topic-based. So for the next several episodes, I'm going to be covering the Great Depression all over the world, not just one specific nation. Although it most badly affected the United States, so the meat of the, this first mini-series will be focused there. The other most affected nation was Germany, and I'll be covering how they factored into the decision-making among nations at the highest levels in this series. The more ground-level internal miseries suffered by that nation will actually be a useful segue to my next topic, and thus will get its own mini-series, the rise of the Nazis from the end of 1929 to the start of 1933. So that'll be next. If you've been wondering where all the Nazis have been on a podcast about the causes of World War II, they're on their way. But first... The Depression. Like I said a moment ago, the Great Depression wasn't just the Wall Street crash of November 1929. Already before the crash, the American economy was entering into a recession, 
and the crash was mostly gravity reasserting itself against a colossal bubble of speculation. The American economy was based first and foremost on consumerism, the mass production and sale of goods to the millions of ordinary people in the country. And those ordinary people by 1929 were tapped out as buyers. Wages hadn't improved sufficiently over the decades to properly buy all the new consumer goods the industrial sector was rolling out, and it was only through innovations in personal credit that the economy was able to expand as far as it did. But a breaking point was reached, and Americans simply no longer had sufficient money to spend, whether it was money on hand or borrowed. Unfortunately, the industrial sector had not picked up on this trend in time, and their operations had continuously expanded with the assumption that the existing patterns of consumption would continue indefinitely. This optimistic mentality went double for the stock market, as investors with too easy access to borrowed money were constantly on the lookout for the next big thing. And thanks to a lack of regulation and the sheer amount of money sloshing around the system, a company could put on the appearance of being the next great business opportunity for a long time before being revealed to basically be a shell company. And when I talk about the American consumer running out of money, I'm not saying that it was a complete on-off light switch when it came to spending. The actual decline in spending was measured in the single-digit percentage points. Nothing truly disastrous. That is, if manufacturers hadn't overextended themselves by expanding their operations to accommodate expected growth, or if the market wasn't a total house of cards that depended on growing influxes of money to keep everything going. The American economy had been jury-rigged to function only when an expanding population base consumed ever more, and that stopped. What resulted was one of the greatest systemic failures ever seen, and it took place over years. The crash was just the dramatic start. Long stretches of agony followed, so let's get started on the details of that for real. The American president on the scene at the end of 1929 was Herbert Hoover. You know him already from last season. He's the workaholic that had run several private relief organizations both abroad and in the United States. He was a man with vision enough to understand the great power at his disposal as president, which the same could not be said of his two predecessors. His fatal flaw was that he felt it was his responsibility to only use those powers in certain circumstances. And especially at first, he didn't think the economic crash was all that important. Yes, he was basically the dog in a little hat sitting in a burning house saying, this is fine. Yeah, the falls in the stock market were dramatic, but the market wasn't the economy. And yeah, industry had overextended, but the sound firms would liquidate what they no longer needed and move along. People would be out of work, but that had happened before in the early 1920s, and the state and local governments had proven capable enough to manage their unemployment problems while the federal government carried on with its true purpose of creating favorable conditions for commerce to thrive. The important thing from his point of view was to not overreact and just let the economy sort itself out. Business sense held that downturns like these were cyclical and would pass before long to make way for a new phase of growth. Andrew Mellon, still Treasury Secretary and now serving his third president, advised Hoover, liquidate labor, liquidate stocks, liquidate the farmers, liquidate real estate. It will purge the rottenness out of the system. High costs of living and high living will come down. People will work harder, lead a more moral life said the billionaire who was minimally exposed to what was happening. 
Hoover was far-sighted enough to convince the big firms of the country to not slash wages in their cost-cutting measures. After all, the cause of the recession was a fall in consumer spending, so cutting it still more for short-term gains wouldn't do anything other than make a bad situation worse. That, coupled with the Federal Reserve being front and center with offering cheap debt to those banks who needed it, as well as price guarantees for agricultural goods, were integral pieces in a campaign to ease panicked feelings and restore confidence in the economy. Because just like today, patterns of consumption are dictated by how the great mass of people buying goods feel about their long-term prospects. So it is now, so it was then. And for a brief window from November 1929 to April 1930, the tactics of reassurance appear to do the trick. In that window of some six months, a fifth of the stock market's losses from the previous autumn had been regained, companies largely kept their wages intact, and local governments opened their purses to public works projects to create jobs. It might not be so bad after all. But the prospect of recovery turned out to be a mirage. After April 1930, the market slid back down, with the S&P stock index losing half its value by year's end. By then, there had also been over 26,000 individual business failures, a record. Production was down 30 to 40 percent in some sectors, as demand never properly recovered. 4.3 million people were estimated to have been laid off, taking more consumers out of the economy. Prices began to fall, which on the surface appears better than inflation, but it was coming at a bad time. The deflation meant that overall debt became a greater burden on overall household income, as people had less money to use to pay back static loans. This was notably consequential when looking at the reduced prices in agricultural products. Remember last season when I mentioned that the 20s were hard on American farmers? Really, farmers the world over, but in America especially? Well, it got a whole lot worse for them. Prices on their crops went down, which meant they had less to spend. And most farmers held their land under a mortgage, which meant their debts also became an ever bigger slice of their spending. It was a disastrous double whammy. But still, nobody wanted to pull the emergency switch. Now, this wasn't as insane as it might sound to us with the benefit of hindsight. The recession of 1930 was bad, but the one endured in 1921 that I covered last season was actually worse in terms of unemployment and loss of confidence at that time. Since that recession was so recent, many simply equated what was happening to back then and assumed that the bottom was being reached. Sooner rather than later, they could look forward to being back on the upswing. Except that this time, conditions were fairly different. This time, the danger extended into the very heart of the economy, the banking system. American business, like its counterparts in most every other developed country, had long since been taken in by finance capitalism, which is to say that business operations at every level of the economy depended on the lubricating effects of loans. Businesses didn't just operate, make a little money, then use that money to expand through its own means. Their proven profitability was instead used as the basis for securing credit, oftentimes much larger sums than they'd otherwise have on hand, in order to reinvest, expand, or just make sure day-to-day -day affairs ran smoothly. The banking sector, though, was in a spot of trouble, although the infamous sequence of bank failures had not yet gotten underway. A lot of banks had been lending out money based on purchased stock, which proved to be disastrous in late 1929. And in the interior of the country, banks removed from the stock markets were often tied up with farmer mortgages, which those weren't doing so hot either. 
The problem this presented was if banks would be able to continue loaning out money and if their deposits on hand were sufficient to fight off a bank run. That last bit is important because as we periodically relearn every so often, banking is centered on how much money depositors keep in their accounts. Loans were made with the understanding that the money being loaned out was covered by that in the accounts of the bank's clients. If the bank suddenly had a bunch of loans fail and the bank in question had no valuable collateral to collect upon, then it was just money lost. And banks don't print money. It all comes from the depositors. And if a bank lost a big pile of money, enough to threaten its own balance sheet to the point where it couldn't continue operations and instead folded, then those depositors would just lose their money. This being before the time of banking insurance, at least assuring depositors that no matter what happened, they'd at least get some of it back. And this all wasn't a secret either. Bank failures happened with terrifying regularity back in those days, and people were prone to panic and withdraw their money when trouble looked to be brewing, which then became a self-fulfilling prophecy as the banks lost access to funds with which it could make loans and ergo a profit. These runs would send banks into a death spiral, as people paid close attention to such matters back in those days and were quick to make a break for it. The solution to this danger was on paper already in existence, though. The Federal Reserve had been set up in December 1913 to ensure that if the financial sector went pear-shaped, then it would step in and provide loans to banks in order to keep them afloat. Which, yes, banks taking out loans of their own is a perfectly valid strategy, just that before the Federal Reserve existed, there was only a network of private banks operating independently, all seeking to maximize how much money they took in. Which meant that when a recession hit, they were all exposed to one extent or another and not in a position to loan each other money. The Federal Reserve System got around this by creating a central bank that wouldn't be a regular player on the markets, but rather an institution that focused on making sure the machinery of the system itself remained in working order. In this scenario, that meant that guaranteeing money would be available to banks so, they, so that they could continue to conduct business normally. The problem was that the Federal Reserve was still new, only having been around for less than two decades. Its mission was to keep the banking sector functioning normally during a crisis. But there weren't a whole lot of rules in place to govern how it did that or what constituted a genuine crisis. And the Federal Reserve was deliberately created to operate outside the federal government, meaning that its board of governors had a lot of leeway with how to come to the rescue. And since so many banks had engaged in risky behavior when it came to margin loans that were used to buy up all those risky stocks, the Federal Reserve focused on supporting banks that the Board of Governors deemed to have been managed soundly, the ones who could be construed as innocent bystanders to the whole thing. This mentality might seem absurd to the modern listener. Uh, today, the Federal Reserve doesn't show a great deal of restraint when it wants to throw its weight around. But back then, there was still the idea that there were businesses properly managed and those who engaged in patently risky behavior that should not have been rewarded. Where the line was between the two states of being was purely in the eye of the governors, and a sign that a bank was well-managed was what it could post as collateral for loans being granted by the Federal Reserve. If a bank went to the Federal Reserve for additional liquidity, it had to offer something as collateral, and if the entire problem was that cash wasn't readily available, then that collateral turned out to be the debts that the bank had loaned out already. After all, if the loans were solid, then that debt itself was as good as money. But loans aren't all created equal. Those margin ones secured by worthless stock made to insolvent borrowers were 
just as worthless as their collateral. The ideal debt to be put up as collateral to another loan were short-term commercial ones, typically less than a year in length. Their purposes were typically just to help businesses with day-to-day -day operations or for one-time uses, with the loans themselves expected to be paid back in short order, which made them safer bets by far. If a bank had more of those kinds of loans on the books compared to riskier ones, then it was deemed to have been well-managed. This meant a lot of banks could expect to be given the cold shoulder. However, well-managed ones too could also expect more of the same in practice, because by, let's say, mid-1930, businesses had already been contracting for the past year. Ergo, they were taking out fewer loans, and therefore even the safer banks had fewer solid loans on the books than they normally would have, which meant that if the bank got into trouble, then they'd have less to offer up to the Federal Reserve to stabilize their own position. There was also the added wrinkle that banks didn't approach the Federal Reserve as the first resort when they needed extra cash. They put up their assets among other banks first. This meant that most banks already sold off much of their commercial loans, not to mention mortgages and bond holdings, to other institutions in order to raise cash. This meant the value of all these instruments flatlined as the market became saturated with them, and many banks found themselves without a lot of solid loans left on the books. The last problem with the Federal Reserve was that it worked with national-level banks, not with state-chartered ones that catered mostly to farmers. Those smaller banks didn't see a whole lot of commercial traffic, so the reserve didn't include them in the network that they watched out for. In fact, only a third of banks were in the reserve system. Everybody else was largely on their own. Which was bad, because that's where the big trouble in the financial system was going to start. This was all a special kind of mess that beggars the imagination as to how anyone thought this was a good idea. But the beauty of capitalism in general, and especially the decentralized capitalism of yesteryear, was that nobody was ever quite sure what everybody else was doing, so the only thing a businessman could do was chase the next dollar. Reflection would only come after the bottom had fallen out. As I mentioned a moment ago, bank failures were a fact of life in those days in America. The lack of regulations created a free-for-all where there weren't a lot of protections. Throughout the 1920s, banks failed at a rate of over 500 a year on average. 1929 saw an uptick towards 660, and most of 1930 saw much the same pattern. That is, until October of that year. Starting in October 1930, a slew of Midwestern banks, many of them small ones servicing small, rural communities, started going under. In the last days of the year, some 600 banks went under in rapid succession, to bring the year's total to 1,352. It was a disaster for consumer confidence as suddenly everybody who had money in a bank was wondering if their own deposits were secure. Many people decided they weren't secure and a rash of bank runs commenced in earnest. This was bad because when I said there wasn't a lot of regulation, I should also add that what guidelines and statutes did exist were at the state level. So, a bank on one side of the state line might operate totally differently than its counterpart on the other side. This was in keeping with the wishes of President... Oh, it goes back to Andrew Jackson. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, Jackson rather determinedly squashed the idea of centralized banks, and nobody mustered the will to change that until the turn of the next century. This meant every little community had their own bank, as the larger ones mostly kept to the biggest cities, as local officials decried becoming reliant on out-of-town institutions. Which, hey, fair, but that also meant that what banks' small towns did have access to 
also had terribly limited resources and got slammed in a crisis. Which, hey, fair, but that did mean that banks in small towns only had access to very limited resources, and they got slammed in a crisis. And people figured this out and continued to withdraw their money from their checking accounts, causing more local banks to go under. A notable case of a big bank going under was at the end of 1930, when the Bank of the United States, servicing over 400,000 customers in New York, failed. The bank had been a core component of New York finance, but two telling factors killed it. One was that it had a large amount of bad debt on the books via margin loans. That meant the Federal Reserve declined to provide additional funding that could be used to save it. Nevertheless, the Reserve asked other banking institutions to be good neighbors and help them out. That led to problem number two, which was that Bank of the United States was a Jewish-owned and operated bank that catered to Jewish customers. The other banking institutions refused to provide help. It wasn't formally thrown out there, but the reason was very likely anti-Semitism among the other banks. This set up a shockwave in the financial sector across the country, as it demonstrated that even a big bank could go under. Its name also didn't help, as while it didn't have any affiliation with the government of the United States, people both abroad and at home made that connection in their heads and figured the state itself was on thin ice, driving confidence down still further. 1930 ended on a bad note, and it continued all through 1933. The next year, in 1931, 2,300 banks went under. In 32, it was 1,500, and in 33, it was 4,000. By 1933, 45% of America's banks were gone. That had never happened before. And in the process of banks going kaput, the deposits that were kept in them were lost as well. Suddenly, the United States lost a third of its money supply, which was only made worse as banks fought to keep extra liquidity in their vaults, which just meant more money was kept out of the economy. The average income of Americans was halved during this time, which wasn't to say that everybody was making half as much, just that millions were losing their jobs. This was obviously very bad for an economy based off consumption. If people didn't have money in which to buy things, both because they were out of work and because opportunities to obtain money were being reduced, then you could be sure that the resulting depression would be a long one, which it was. And while during this whole explanation, I know I'm coming dangerously close to presenting the elimination of finance capital as a net negative, the problem was that an alternative wasn't available. The United States was just in too deep without institutions at the ready to cobble together a solution. The basis of the American economy went bye-bye, and there wasn't even a revolution in play to offer something else. There was just stunned, blank horror at everything playing out the way it did. Except... Even then, the worst still hadn't come yet. I kind of let the cat out of the bag by detailing the bank failures over the next three years, but there was still plenty more to come in order to make this depression the great one. And something funny happened as the year turned to 1931. Much like the turn from 29 to 30, people started convincing themselves that the worst had passed. Hoover himself professed optimism, which was backed up at least by economists, confirming it appeared that the worst had indeed passed. They had said that the year previously, too, but in their defense, they had never been exposed to the kind of extended crisis ahead of them, so them saying 1930 was the worst of it is more naivete than anything else. And politically for Hoover, it might not have mattered much uh, one way or the other. His opportunity to take strong action had been in 1920 and in 1930. 
The midterms of 1930 brought gridlock back to Washington. The House of Representatives was held by the Republicans by only a single seat, while the Senate was tied with a Republican vice president breaking it. Unfortunately, this slim hold against the Democrats was undermined by rebellious elements among congressional Republicans that either feared Hoover going too far or hounded him for not going far enough to provide economic relief. The Democrats, for their part, were weary of a decade of Republican dominance in the White House and Congress and were committed to making his life as miserable as possible for as long as possible with an eye towards opening the way for a Democratic president in 1933. Still, Hoover counted himself lucky. By the start of 1931, the bread lines were winding down, the bank failures had apparently lost their momentum, and economic journals of good repute were predicting an upswing. He felt himself confident enough that he vetoed multiple pieces of legislation presented to him by the reconfigured Congress to provide relief. He shot down over $4 billion in public works projects, he rejected initiative to beef up federal-level employment agencies for those seeking work, and something that he would be very, very remembered for later on down the road, he vetoed the Veterans Bonus Bill. Uh, that last one will have consequences I'll be covering in a couple of episodes. Basically, the veterans of World War I were due to be paid out a bonus for their service in 1945. Basically, an old age thank you from a grateful nation. The bonus bill would allow that money to be claimed immediately, though, which was handy as it was very likely the veterans needed that money in the short term, as many had exhausted their finances otherwise. And hey, that'd be a boost to consumer spending in the immediate term, too. As with the other pieces of legislation, Hoover argued that the expense was not justified with recovery on the horizon. But of course, Hoover was dead wrong, and everything was bound to get worse. But that would be the result of the Depression going global. Which is why next week we'll be zooming out and covering just how the failure of American finance had repercussions in Europe, which then doubled back around and returned for seconds in the United States. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.